Welcome to New City Church's podcast. We're a small non-denominational church in Nashville, Tennessee, practicing the way of Jesus together. For more information on who we are, what we do, and some resources for your faith, you can check out newcitynash.com. But we hope you enjoy this message and that it blesses you. Son's name. Amen. 
I've struggled with loneliness a lot of my life. Uh, feelings that no one understands or likes me. If I haven't met you, nice to meet you. Uh, part of that is connected to my struggle with uh, depression and anxiety for most of my life. But for a lot of my life, a recurring narrative script that I would hear in my head is no one gets you. No one likes you, no one understands you, and you'll always feel like this. I remember uh, particularly uh, when I was in the dark throes of a really bad season of depression after college, I came to the recognition that in my story, I never knew a time I didn't feel like this. I just didn't have words for it. I basically always felt what I now would categorize as depressed and anxious, but I didn't have words for it then. But I realized in my life after I graduated college that I had been justifying my pain and emotional state by saying it'll get better. It'll get better uh, when school starts back. It'll get better when summer starts. It'll get better if I'm in a relationship. It'll get better if I pray more. It will get better when. And after I graduated college and began working, I no longer had uh, that like natural semester or summer break. Uh, and I realized that all of my it will get better whens didn't happen. How long will it always be like this? No more it will get better ones when every time the when happens, you're left feeling disappointed. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I tried a lot of things that's subject for another conversation, but I remember feeling so hopeless. I felt really disappointed. I'd hoped things would be different. I'd hoped a new semester would change things. I hoped therapy would make my problems stop and surely some of these things helped. I'd really hoped praying would cause God to heal my depression. I'd hoped I would feel less alone. I felt incredibly disappointed. Have you ever felt that? Like you had so deeply hoped something would work out and maybe when it didn't, it left you feeling emotionally and maybe even spiritually stranded. Like maybe you were disappointed in yourself or maybe you were disappointed in someone else or maybe, just maybe, you, like me, felt disappointed in God. Remember there's some songs that, um, even we, we sing here like that talk about your, like God's never going to let me down. And I remember singing those and being like, eh, I feel quite let down. And, and now I see them a little bit differently as like kind of a declaration of ultimately he's not going to let me down, but on this walk to Emmaus that we just read about, we find two of Jesus' followers walking together, talking about everything that had just happened. I can imagine what they must have talked about, focusing in on Jesus and what he had done. And as we see later in the passage, talking specifically about the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. And we see sadness written on their faces when Jesus appears to them and asks them what they are discussing. One of the men, Cleopas, responds, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. Jesus' response is just one word in biblical Greek when he says, what things? One word, leading to a response that spans 112 words in Greek over multiple verses where they describe what had happened. And in verse 20, we see that our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. The one they had hoped in was crucified, was gone. And not only was there pain from that, I sense in this even the reference to our priests. Not their priests, not the priests, our priests, my priest, handed them over. Thinking about uh, before in the story when we uh, talked about this a few weeks ago with the uh, story of the Last Supper and the disciples, all but Judas, asked, am I the one, Lord, who's going to betray you? And Judas asked, teacher, am I the one? Or something along those lines. 
that the pain was not only that their Savior was gone, but part of the pain also was ways in which they'd contributed to it. But here we notice that the people that we had looked to to be religious leaders contributed to the loss of my hope. What a painful thing to have pain inflicted by your own people, to be betrayed, or to watch someone you love be harmed by your own, our own. Verse 21 says, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. This was recent pain, three days. And of course this is painful. Three days you haven't had time to grieve, process, let alone find any sort of healing. And we see there that they had hoped. Had hoped in, uh, is in a verb tense, implying an ongoing action in the past. Uh, in other words, it's not that they had hope in just one moment, that right now I have hope and then it was gone. They had an ongoing, present sort of hope. We had hoped. They had hoped he was someone. They had hoped he was this Messiah. They had hoped he would rescue seemingly. They both hoped in him and that he would do something. And gosh, isn't that so true with hope and disappointment? When you hope someone, or more particularly God, will do something, answer the prayer that you have been praying for years with all sorts of faith and have been praying with other people for, to heal the relationship that is so dear to your heart, to rescue your loved one, to cause the depression to stop, and for whatever reason, right now, he doesn't. The disappointment is both in that the thing that you wanted so desperately and it seemed good didn't happen. And also, I think if we're really intellectually and emotionally honest, it's often in the one who you trusted to do it who didn't seem to answer your prayer. May I encourage us this morning from this story, oftentimes our disappointment isn't found because we lack faith. It might actually be found because of the depth of it. I referenced this quote last week, but Parker Palmer, who is a theologian and writer, said this. He said, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. What if the reason the pain and disappointment is so heavy is not because you lack faith? What if it is precisely because you have it? Like these men walking with Jesus here, we too often find ourselves on a walk to Emmaus, walking away from some terrible tragedy or walking in the midst of it, trying to make sense of why. What happened? What do I do with this? Maybe you're walking on that road with a close loved one and trying to unpack it, and it's so on my mind. How could you not know about this like they asked Jesus? Or maybe you, like me, how I'm more prone to do it, are just trying to make sense of it in your own mind. And maybe talking about it is even more than what you can do. But disappointment isn't just a mind thing that you can somehow reason out of. It's a heart thing. It can cause your heart to do a lot of things. It can confuse you. It can numb you. In some ways, it's like a fire, like cauterizing your heart. It can sadden you. It can like scold you, burn. It certainly affects how you see everything else. When we are hurting, our assumptions, our pain points, our difficulties become, in a lot of ways, filters by which we interpret the world. In verse 22, we see Cleopas tell about the women who visited the tomb early that morning, and it says they came back with an amazing report. And when I read this initially uh, in the New Living Translations, the translation we're reading from, 
amazing in and of itself. I read that one verse. It seems like a very positive, happy thing. We heard this amazing report. One Greek lexicon defined this word, amazed, as to cause to be in a state in which things seem to make little or no sense. Confuse, amaze, astound, is the new Revised Standard Version translates it. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. Well, that reads a little bit different. That tends to be how I interpret it as well. The women said this, but gosh, what do I do with this? Because my lived experience tells me something exactly different than this. You'll note in the text as well the frequent references to they said when it comes to the women, which is obviously true that the women said this, but our emphases point out something. As the New Revised Standard Version translates these next verses, verses 22 to 24, moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, there they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. We see a repeated emphasis on the women telling, seeming to me to imply at least a separation between what the women said and what they lived and experienced. We even see this noted in Jesus' response where he said that these men find it so hard to believe. While they're walking next to Jesus, who admittedly God kept them from recognizing, recognizing, and even after hearing the reports of his body being gone from the tomb and the appearance of angels, they found it hard to believe, even though they had journeyed with Jesus, had followed him. And oftentimes when we hear other people talk about things, sometimes it's really hard to believe them. Uh, other times people say things that aren't true. I remember growing up, I heard uh, constant messages, or pretty constant messages, that I was to choose joy. That if I trust in God, I can cast all my worries upon him, which I can't. And somehow I will find peace and all my anxiety and depression would go away. Certainly those things help, but cue years of chronic depression, thoughts of thinking it would be better if I wasn't around, anxiety, crying, curled up in a ball, begging God to change it. Once again, nice to meet you if I haven't met you. I thought following Jesus meant somehow transcending pain. Like, even words that I would use at different times, acting myself into a way of feeling, which there's some scientific research behind some of that. But no matter how much I acted, I didn't seem to be able to change how I felt, practicing gratitude, praying. This kind of choose joy did not line up with my lived experience. In fact, it seemed for me for a while as I dove deeper and stopped going to my vices to numb my pain, my pain actually got worse. Sometimes I felt really close to God, and other times I felt utterly abandoned. Some of you will be familiar with this story because I've, I've shared it a good bit, and it's one of the profound ways I think I've experienced uh, this message of disappointment. But I prayed uh, and prayed and prayed that God would take it away. And, you know, I mean, in churches, people often give you the advice, you feel bad, what do you do? You pray, you read your Bible. And I remember hearing that advice and thinking, okay, I'm... I can't totally judge it, but I'm pretty sure I'm praying and reading my Bible more than these people who were telling me that. And not that it's a comparison game, but like I am crying on the ground, like begging God to do something. And then eventually just like, God, could you help me make it through the next 10 minutes? Like I was in youth ministry, like can I just make it through this like sermon or this message or hanging out with students and playing game? Can I just make it through there before I break down in tears? Most times I did. I remember one time in particular I did not. Um, 
but I prayed that God would take it away. Eventually, I realized, okay, it doesn't seem like he's answering that one or not saying yes. So then I prayed that he would give me a friend. If you knew me during that time, you were still my friends. That's not what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, but I had some friends that I was walking with uh, that I love dearly, but partially because I didn't fully understand it. They just didn't know how to respond to pain and ongoing, more chronic sort of depression, anxiety. And I just prayed, like, God, would you just give me somebody who doesn't say something stupid? You know? Uh, somebody who just doesn't just tell me, just pray more about it, just read your Bible, just, you know, work out or do whatever. I'm like, man, bro, like, I've tried literally all those things. Um, I just prayed that he would give me a friend. And I remember one night, uh, I was kind of fed up with it, with God, because I was like, surely, you being God, okay, maybe you're going to let me have this pain. Like, maybe it's like my thorn in the flesh, like with Paul. Like, maybe that's what it is. But surely you can just give me a friend. Like, I'm not supposed to do life like feeling like I'm alone. Can you give me like someone who really deeply understands so I don't have to try to justify or explain this to? And I've been praying that for a little while. I don't remember how long. When you're in those seasons, it feels like it's forever. And I told God I was done because he didn't answer. I didn't work out the ramifications of literally any of that because I was on staff at a church and all the things. But I went the next day to see my counselor who I'd been meeting with the past several months. And he's a Christian counselor, but we rarely talked about God for whatever reason. And he asked me, he said, how's your relationship with God doing? So I kind of chuckled because dark humor is funny to me for some reason. Uh, And I said, well, it's funny you ask because we had a good talking to last night. And if I remember correctly, as I sort of unpacked this, I remember him smiling at me, which is a very strange response when you're pouring out your heart about how this thing that's profoundly important to you is now kind of feels shattered. And then he tells me, Man, the whole time you've been coming the past few months, I've just been thinking, our stories are so similar. Not only your depression and anxiety, but the root causes of the things that you've been unpacking with me in therapy. Like, that's been my story. I was like, okay, wow, okay, cool, 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 cool. And then he goes on to say, there's this story in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, where there's this prophet named Elijah who goes in, and a lot of people believe what he does there is he prays a suicidal prayer. Lord basically gives him enough to sustain him. And little did he know, uh, as a kid, my dream job, it's probably going to say a lot about me, but I wanted to be a prophet like Elijah. In the Bible, there's this story with Elijah where Elijah doesn't die. He goes to heaven in a chariot of fire. I've struggled with social anxiety most of my life. At that time, I never in a million years would have dreamed of doing this. It was purely because I didn't want to die. And then a few years before, I'd had someone give me what now I would say is like a prophetic word concerning Elijah in my life. And then here he was telling me in therapy this story about Elijah, having no idea. And I remember thinking, okay, God, when I said I wanted to be like Elijah, this part was certainly not it. Sometimes our assumptions about what God should do hinder us from seeing what he is doing. I thought... I was alone. Meanwhile, for months, I'd had someone who resonated so deeply, not only with the generalities of my story, but the specifics. Just because we don't see it yet doesn't mean he's not working. Just because we're on the road to Emmaus and we have yet to be able to see that Jesus is right there with us doesn't mean that he's not. My assumptions about what God should do hindered me from seeing what he was doing, but bringing my assumptions to him made it all the more noticeable when he quite literally, shattered them. And you know what they say about assumptions, right? If you don't, I'm not repeating that here. 
Okay, a number of you do. Okay, good. Uh, but the truth is, every single one of us have assumptions about God and what he ought to do. We have assumptions about God, about us, about people, about the Bible, and we're going to unpack some of those other ones in the upcoming weeks. But because God is God, he does things that don't make sense to me. He is God. I am not. I can't fully understand him. He, why does God allow us to walk through the things that we walk through? I don't know. Can I tell you now with depression, ways in which I've seen God use it and like ways in which I'm thankful? Yes, I absolutely can. But why are you walking through what you're walking through? I can't give you some pithy platitude that's going to make any of it better. As 1 Corinthians says now, it's like we, we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face in full. So it makes sense to me that a number of my assumptions about who God is are wrong. And the image of seeing in a mirror dimly uh, from commentaries concerning that passage, it would have been in a place where a chief thing that they made or used was bronze. So like using a bronze mirror. And I kind of got the image of like, if I was trying to try to look in my wedding ring and get a picture of what I look like, that's pretty hard. It's not a question of, do we have assumptions? It's a question of, what are our assumptions? Um, I was looking at Anna because last night I was processing through some of this stuff with her before I was gonna run through my sermon. And um, I said, it's a question of, do we have a, a if, oh, I'm making a fool of myself like I did last night. Um, it's not a question of, do we have assumptions? I said, it's a question of, we do have assumptions. And she said, Trey, that's not a question. <laughs> Fair enough. My perspective is that suffering actually burns our assumptions to the forefront of our hearts because we realize we need him. And as a pastor and writer named John Mark Comer said, suffering actually can be a furnace for spiritual maturity where we learn to hold the tension that Jesus did on the cross of both, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, into your hands I commit my spirit. Of the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where... Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Crying and grieving and holding on to hope for the resurrection. Hope that isn't distant or removed from pain or found on the other side of it, but hope that can become present in the midst of pain. Suffering, at least for me, reveals our assumptions and invites us to bring them boldly and bravely to God. I think that bringing them actually invites God to do something to them. There's a power in naming of Jesus' response even there of asking a one-word question and them responding with 112 words, bring it to him before Jesus says, don't you remember? He's God. He's way bigger than me. And if that's true, what if it actually is good to have our assumptions challenged and to get rid of our faulty assumptions about who he is? What if actually that leads me into a fuller life? As James chapter one says, to count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. So let endurance have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What if it's actually good to have our assumptions challenged? In the story we see in verse 25, Jesus says to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into glory? Then he unpacks the scriptures and how they point to himself. When it comes to assumptions about God, we also have a lot of assumptions when it comes to suffering. 
We worship a risen Savior who was crucified. Sunday is here, and Friday was, uh, was brutal. Both are true. A lot of us have some form of uh, assumption that has been deeply ingrained within us that is some kind of escape-the-earth mentality when it comes to Christianity. That one day I will either leave earth and go to heaven, or I will leave earth and go to hell. I'm not going to do a full philosophical overview, but long story short, that dates back to very ancient this church heresy with Gnosticism, which is related to a Greek word for knowledge, and uh, Platonic thinking, or from the philosopher Plato. In essence, saying that the material was bad and the spiritual was good, and that the goal of our human existence was somehow to transcend the material and enter into the spiritual. So in some ways, this kind of gets translated for a lot of us into this idea that the soul would evaporate from your body when you die. It's more fair to say biblically that you are a soul than you have one, and we are embodied creatures and our bodies matter. Why does this matter? Because when it comes to messages like choose joy or messaging concerning suffering, there's some form of narrative that kind of invites us to somehow transcend the material and enter into this different plane of spiritual. But why does it matter? Because when it comes to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, this is not simply a spiritual matter. This is an embodied flesh and bone, blood dripping from him on the cross, body physically resurrected from the dead. What we need is not an escape. What we need is a resurrection. And when Jesus appeared in John chapter, I think it's John chapter 20, we see Jesus actually showcasing his scars. We need a resurrection that is not separated from your lived and felt experience of earth like the goal is just to get out of hell and go to heaven, but where you matter now and in the future. The world matters now, and justice and goodness and love matter now, and we pray for God to transform the world to reflect his kingdom and use us, where God transforms what was meant for evil and turns it and uses it for good. But where we also recognize that there is immense evil, where the news of Jesus wiping every tear from our eye in the book of Revelation is really good news because Lord knows we have been crying. And frankly, he has too. The resurrection requires death, involves pain, but leads to renewal. And what we're diving into here is paradigm-shattering, history-altering stuff. And I know that sounds like a bold claim, and it is. Luke 24, 32. And didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? The heart, as one lexicon defined it, is the seat of physical, spiritual, and mental life. And the, the language for burn is to like be lit aflame. My friends, a lot of our hearts are burning with pain. Others of our hearts have been burned and feel numb. We need a savior in touch with our pain, not to ignore it. What we need is a resurrection. This burning may be numbing you, the burning may be scolding you, but may the Lord today instead ignite it into a burning beacon of light. I'm reminded of the words of, of Paul when he talked about pleading with the Lord about this thorn in his flesh. And when he prayed three times about it, he heard a message saying that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness because Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness. I think a lot of us want to not even talk about the weakness, so how in the world are we able to talk about Christ's power? Don't take my weakness. I want to show you my nail-scarred hands. Jesus appeared resurrected with those. I think it's going to be quite beautiful in eternity when we get to celebrate with God of our resurrected scars. Don't take my weakness. I'm going to boast in it. Because Christ's power is made perfect in it. And 
ironically for me, my, my journey with depression and anxiety, um, in, at least in this present season, has become like a central way in which I've actually come to understand and experience God. God not distant from pain, but God who enters into it. God who is compassionate, which literally means to suffer with us. What we see here in these next few verses is astounding, both in the this is amazing in a wonderful sense, and also in the confusing, what do I do with this sense? This text makes it abundantly clear. This was not simply a spiritual thing. The resurrection of Jesus was a bodily thing. What the text does next is uh, perhaps descriptive more than it is prescriptive, meaning it describes what's happening. It's a narrative more than it is saying this is how we ought to do things. But I want to offer some implications for us this Easter. There is an overwhelming emphasis on the physical resurrection of Jesus, not only the mental and spiritual components of it. We see this first exemplified with Jesus physically walking with them. Verse 29, we see that he went home with them. Verse 30, we see that he sat down to eat, took bread, and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Then suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. So we see him as being physical, but also not bound by what we think is possible. He's fully God and fully man. And they went on telling people. And then let's pick up in verse 37 or sorry, verse 35. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road, see the physical references, and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. And of course they were. Verse 30. Eight, why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? We see this contrast between the hearts that were burning aflame and the hearts filled with doubt. God, would you do that within us to burn our hearts aflame? Would you see into our heart and speak life into our doubt? What is his response into that in verse 39? I think a lot of our responses to people's doubt would be, let me give you the 15 different proofs. Let me try to convince you with argumentation. Jesus says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. Fascinating, right? What's his first response? He goes to the body, physical presence. I'm here. Look at me. Touch me. Where? My hands, my feet. Verse 41 Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Whereas the NRSV translates, yet for all their joy, they were still disbelieving and wondering. And he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? How does Jesus respond to their disbelieving and wondering? At least here, he goes on later to you know, explain the things, but right now he asked them for food. Not with a lecture. Not with belittling. What do they do? They give him a piece of broiled fish and this is kind of funny. He ate it as they watched. Have you ever had somebody just like watch you eat? That feels like uncomfortable, you know what I mean? But they watched him. There's this repeated theme of the body where Jesus, it's abundantly clear. He physically resurrected. He walked. He had hands. He had feet, flesh, bone, multiple references to him eating. It's clear. The resurrection is embodied, if I may put it this way. Christianity at its core, at least historically, is an embodied faith not one that is based on some form of escapism. It holds to an ancient declaration that God made creation, the world, and called it good. The earth matters. And he made humans and said that it was very good, that humans matter. If anything, 
True Christianity actually offers an incredibly high view of the body and a redemptive message about suffering. We'll touch on this some in the upcoming weeks. But if I may as well, just as perhaps a brief aside, God takes care of us also through our bodies. I think one of the ways that church has embodied some of these like ancient kind of heretical teachings uh, is by emphasizing that if you feel bad, if you're sick, if whatever, you ought to just pray and that will make it all better. Do I believe in the power of prayer? 100% I do. Do I believe the Lord can heal people in the name of Jesus? Absolutely I do. But God also heals us through things like medicine and through sleep, through doctors and physicians and through all of these other types of things. Um, and, and I think when it comes to also a lot of times we treat our doubts and questions with a list of answers or spiritual suggestions. But what if God doesn't always meet your doubts with answers, but what if he first meets them with his very presence? Where you bring all of your assumptions before him and you don't even know if they're right or wrong yet. To be honest, I know I've got assumptions about God that are wrong now. Once again, I don't know what they are right now. But in some ways, I look forward and don't look forward to him showing me. And we see that his presence leads to in verse 44, where he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. When I was with you before, I told you. Reminded of the words of Jesus that in this world, you'll have troubles, but take heart for I've overcome the world. I never lied to you. I never forgot you. I never abandoned you. My promise was still true when you hadn't seen it fulfilled. And in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures after the body into the mind and hearts. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. If I may as well there, if God suffered, surely you suffering is not just because you sinned. Verse 47, it was also written in the message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There's forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And the word there for repent, repent literally means like to, the changing of one's mind, to change your mind that results in action. So of course, if we are repenting, our minds would be changing. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Fast forward to the book of Acts, which is like part two of the book of Luke. And Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. It says, uh, you will receive power, my Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, into Samaria, and to the ends of the world. In verse 49, and now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. In verses 50 through 53, then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem, filled with great joy, and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. If we were to play an epilogue to this story, like you know the end credits of some sitcom or something, seeing what happened in 15 years, We'd see 2,000 years of people worshiping Jesus, following him, struggling, wrestling, walking through really immense, heavy things. If we were to just go with the apostles, we would see a lot of beauty and power of the Holy Spirit. And from what has been passed down in church history, we'd see a heck a lot of, of a lot of persecution, crucifixion, stoning, clubbing, a num not clubbing in the partying sense, the other sense. Yeah, really bad. Um, we would see both men and women who passionately committed to this embodied faith, to a resurrected Savior, longing not simply for an escape from the world, but a renewal of it. Entering into the world and asking God to renew and resurrect a faith that is not apart from pain, but actually can be found in it. If you are here today and you have felt let down, if you have felt hurt 
as many of us have by our priests. If you felt left out, abandoned, forgotten about, you are seen, you are known, you are loved. The Savior we worship is not one who sits idly by while people suffer. He enters into it and he identifies, not just cares for, he identifies with the oppressed, the hurting, the grieving, the mourning. Having pain does not mean that you lack faith any more than being happy means that you have it. I want to finish up that quote from Parker Palmer that I read earlier. The deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without hope, faith, and love. We need a resurrection, and today we celebrate one. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm going to invite the band to come, uh, come back up. Uh, as you came in, you noticed that there are, uh, hopefully, maybe you didn't, there are donuts there that are for you guys to grab um, because it's a holy day and donuts are holy. So I debated in my head whether I should say that just now, and I still did. So I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that. But as, we, as you eat those, if you want to eat them, you don't have to, I'm not forcing donuts upon you, but we got plenty. I want you to just to imagine like Jesus being as present to you as like eating a donut. Like he is physically resurrected. He is here with us in this moment. And the thing about eating and sharing meals together is you gotta eat whether you're sad, whether you're happy, whether you're anxious, whether you're exhausted, no matter what. And so as we eat donuts, you go today and you eat whatever Easter meal you're gonna eat or maybe you're fasting, whenever you eat again, Sense God's embodied presence with us as we are here together with one another. Christ is as present with us or more so than we are here present with one another. May we embody and hold the tension of the resurrection. And as I, as I read um, recently, both the, the tension of presently, I may not be fully healed. I may feel sick, I may feel overwhelmed, I may feel incredibly sad. That's true but I also hold hope that one day I will be. I may not be healed today, but one day I will be. May we embody the presence of Jesus to one another, not just responding to doubts and questions and pain with pithy platitudes that are not helpful and actually probably the opposite of helpful and seemingly to me often opposite to the heart of God, but may we respond to our own pain and the pain of others by an embodied presence, being present with one another, bringing food, sharing a meal with one another. And do that way before you try to offer some sort of explanation. May we embody the presence of our resurrected Savior today. We all pray with me. Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it blessed you and helped you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. But we pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, and that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.